Why, hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs, whether you're here, across the pond, in the pond, or otherwise. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. What I just said will make sense in a moment. It is my job on every episode to deconstruct world-class performers, to tease out the favorite books, the habits, routines, forms of journaling, whatever it might be, that you can test and apply in your own lives. My guest today, I've wanted to have on for a very long time. His name is Richard Koch, K-O-C-H. Richard is an entrepreneur, investor, former strategy consultant, and author of several books on business and ideas, including four books on how to apply the 80-20 principle in all walks of life. He also has a wonderful British accent, which is why I talked about Across the Pond. His investments, because he's not just a theoretician, he's a practitioner, his investments have grown at 22%, compounded annually over 37 years. That's a long time. Try that with a small number and see what happens. Richard's investments have included Filofax, Plymouth Gin, Belgo, Betfair, which is the world's largest betting exchange. We talk about this one quite a bit. FanDuel and Auto One. He has worked for the Boston Consulting Group and was a partner at Bain & Co., that's Bain & Company, before leaving to start LEK with Jim Lawrence and Ian Evans, which expanded from three to 350 professionals during the six years Richard was there. In 1997, the 80-20 principle, the book, reinterpreted the Pareto rule, extending the observation that most results come from a small minority of causes which was well-known in business, into personal life, happiness, success, and more. The book, substantially updated in 2017, has sold more than a million copies. I have bought many of those myself and given copies away. It's been translated into roughly 40 languages and become a business classic. It was named by GQ Magazine as one of the top 25 business books of all time. His new book, published on August 13th, 2020, is Unreasonable Success and How to Achieve It. In it, Richard charts a new map of success, which he says can propel anyone to new heights of accomplishment. High success, he says, does not require genius, consistency, all-around ability, a safe pair of hands, or even basic competence, which is reassuring, but it does require the nine key attitudes and strategies he has identified, and we dig into all of this and more in this conversation. It's important to note, I had a great time doing this, that's not important, but the following is important, <laughs> that we talk about a lot in the world of investing and consulting because I want to give you all a lens into his thinking. So rather than listening to someone say negotiating is important, I would prefer to dig into real world examples of what they have done so you can learn how to fish, metaphorically speaking, as opposed to being given a fish in the form of some type of fortune cookie parable or something like that. So we get into a lot of concrete details in investing and consulting, and those are lenses through which you can look at many, many areas in your own life, whether it's personal or business. So I just wanted to explain that, and I think that's enough preamble. We get into a lot. We get into the art of gambling, 80-20 principle, happiness islands, achieving unreasonable success, ball-aching insights... <laughs> <laughs> journaling, Walt Disney, and lots more. Without further ado, please meet Richard Kosh. You can find him on Twitter at richardkosh8020 and online richardkosh.net. Unreasonable success and how to achieve it. You've written many books. Why this book? I've always been fascinated by success and I've always been fascinated by the discrepancy really between, as I see it, 
the arbitrary nature of success in many ways, which is that the people who are successful are not necessarily the people who are most intelligent or most expected to succeed or who um, deserve it. You know, and many of the people, many of the 20 people that I highlight in the book weren't even competent. And Winston Churchill was a prime example of someone who was a complete failure through most of his career got one thing right, which was that Hitler was a threat to the world and that he knew how to deal with Hitler. But but basically, uh, the man was a disaster and he thought that oratory would propel him to become prime minister. But, you know, as Herbert Asquith said, it does not matter if you speak with the tongues of men and angels if nobody trusts you. And it was, a, it was directed exactly at Churchill. So I've always been fascinated by success, but the actual genesis of the book, as you said, came on a, a train journey. I was traveling from Paris with a friend of mine to Lyon, and I always take a book with me, and I didn't have a book, a new book that I wanted to read, so I took an old book, which was Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. And you probably remember that in Outliers, the whole thesis is that success derives from deep experience and long exposure to doing something in a very narrow field. Uh, and he came up with the idea of the 10,000 hours, which is now a trope, something which everyone talks about. And he gave a couple of examples very early on in the book, which resonate very nicely, which are the Beatles, for example. In 1960, they were just a rather poor high street band and then something happened to them, which was that they went off to the strip clubs of Hamburg and they had to play seven days a week, eight hours a day. And as John Lennon was quoted in the book as saying, we couldn't help improve with all of that extra experience. I took those people and then I said, would it be possible to do what Malcolm Gladwell set out to do and in my opinion did not succeed in doing? Would it be possible to look at the causes of success for those people and identify things which were common to all 20 people, which they all had or did? It might be an experience that they had, or it might be uh, an attitude which they had, or it might be a way that they exploited particular opportunities. Would it be possible to look at that and say, that there are things which are so universally present that if you want to be what I call unreasonably successful, which is more than you deserve, if you like, there's a terrifically successful in changing the world the way you want to work, change it. It might be a small corner of the world, or it might be a big corner of the world. Would it be possible to isolate the reasons for that? And I looked at 50 possible reasons. For example, I looked at, you know, would you need to be a high risk taker? And the answer was, of those 20 people, only nine of them actually took very high risk, of 20 people in my book. Um, only, only nine of them actually took uh, very high risk. So that went, went away. And then I narrowed it down to nine reasons uh, which were universally present in all of the cases. And I did, not, I did not throw people out if they didn't meet the nine requirements. I was quite rigorous with myself. I said, no. And the people that I, the, the, the players that I took were, besides Bill Byrne and Bruce Henderson, there was Jeff Bezos, Otto van Bismarck, Winston Churchill, Marie Curie, uh, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci, Walt Disney, Bob Dylan, 
Albert Einstein, Viktor Frankl, the guy who was shoved into a concentration camp by Hitler but came up with the third wave of psychology after Freud and Adler and was probably the first real existential philosopher. Bruce Henderson mentioned Steve Jobs, John Maynard Keynes, who saved the world from fascism and communism perhaps as a result of saying that you didn't have to have very high unemployment um, and the state could step in and that would be fine um, under a liberal capitalist regime. Lenin, I mentioned Madonna, Nelson Mandela. I think success is very subjective and can only be the person's objectives. And, you know, I'd, I mean, people said to me, Why, how, how on earth can you put Lenin in the book? And in fact, at one stage, I had Hitler in the book and the publishers insisted on it being thrown out because they said the booksellers would never sell it. If he was in the book, I said, well, we don't like Hitler. I'm in favour of Hitler. They said, no, Hitler's got to go. So it's, it's value-free in the sense that it is what they achieved, which changed the world the way they wanted to change it, whether that was a good thing or a bad thing or, or an indifferent thing. That's, that's unreasonable success in one definition. Success is a, is a whole continuum as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, I'm not against minor successes at all. That's absolutely great. But what I was really interested in, in order to establish the, the most important causes of major success is what I called unreasonable success. And I had four criteria for that. You could say that in a word, it's undeserved success, but that's, that's a little bit unfair. Firstly, it's such success in changing the world. It seems unreasonable for one individual to do that. I mean, we're, we live in a world which is quite collective and which is governed by culture and constraints which are quite immovable. We think the world's changing very fast, but in many ways the world doesn't change very fast. And then suddenly it does. And what usually is behind that is not a huge number of people doing something. It's an individual deciding to do something and managing to persuade other people to do that. So it's unreasonable in the sense that one person has all of that impact. I know that you're interested in very practical things. So in the book, I discuss what do you do if you don't have self-belief? And for example, one of the things that you can do is to realize it has to be in a specific domain or context. And so you've got to identify that context where you could really change things. Secondly, find a fantasy men mentor. Now, this is quite an, I think it's quite an interesting and perhaps original concept. I was driven to it by studying Bob Dylan. Because here this guy arrived in New York, completely unknown, 19 years old, but with a fantastically high ambition. And one of the things which he did was to seek out Woody Guthrie, who was probably the template that he wanted, which was Woody Guthrie had been not only a folk singer, but also a, a protester, really, and also someone who wrote his own songs. And in fact, that was very unusual at the time. And folk songs were meant to be sort of, they arose from the folk, <laughs> not from individuals. And Guthrie actually changed that. He wrote a lot of original songs. And Dylan did too. He started writing his own songs, one of which was called The Ode to Woody. And he went to the hospital in New Jersey where uh, Woody Guthrie was suffering from a terrible, terrible disease called Huntington's syndrome. And whether or not Guthrie was really aware that Dylan was there, whether he actually thought Dylan was um, going to um, be the new Woody Guthrie is really unclear, but it's curiously irrelevant as well because 
because uh, Bob Dylan took from that template. That's what he had to do. He had to write his own original songs. He had to claim the heritage of Guffery as some, something which would perhaps get him some publicity and attention. And somehow he managed to get a contract with the all of the folk labels rejected him, but Columbia Records, which was a blue chip you know, firm, obviously, uh, signed him. And then, you know, that gave him confidence and it gave him contacts and it gave him gigs and goodness knows what else. And he was able to produce albums and, and you know, then he was made. And also, of course, he hijacked, in a sense, the, the protest movement. 